Hello and welcome to episode number 252 of Smart Podcast Trashy Books. I'm Sarah Wendell from Smart Bitches Trashy Books. With me today is Dr. Keisha Ali, who is professor of religion at Boston University and the author of a new book, Human in Death, Morality and Mortality in J.D. Robb's Novels. We are going to talk about what inspired her to write a book about the series, which is now 45 plus books in, and what she discovered with her multiple and attentive rereads of the entire series, plus some key novels inside it. We talk about portrayals of ethics, family, friendship, race, women's work, and of course, violence. And we hear what she's working on next and of course, what she's reading. Now, if you are at all familiar with the in-death world, this part should not be a surprise. Uh, trigger warning for discussions of sexual assault, violence, abuse, and rape in the plot of the in-death books, like all of them. I can't pinpoint specifically where we talk about violence because we kind of talk about it all the time in different ways. So if this is a series or a world that is not for you, this might not be a great episode to listen to. I want you to feel safe, so I'm sorry I can't be more specific about when we talk about these things because they come up a lot. If you've ever read or heard about these books, that makes sense. I also want to give a very special thank you to Dr. Sarah Ronis, who is Assistant Professor of Biblical Studies at St. Mary's University in Texas. She emailed me before this book came out to suggest Dr. Ali as a guest, and she was totally right. I learned so much from this interview. I cannot wait for you to hear it. So thank you both to Dr. Ali and to Dr. Ronis. And more news. I have so much to say in this intro. I gave myself like nine minutes to get this in because there's so many things I have to tell you. If you are curious about human death, human in death, not human death, that's a whole other thing. If you're curious about human in death, Dr. Ali's book, her publisher, Baylor Press, has been supremely awesome. First, we have a giveaway of one hardcover copy. So if you would like to enter, head on over to the podcast entry at smartbitchestrashybooks.com slash podcast. There will be a raffle copter widget inside the podcast entry for you to drop your email into. This giveaway is open to U.S. and Canadian residents only. My apologies. You must be over 18 and ready to learn all the things Voyagewear prohibited. By submitting an entry to the contest as set forth her herein, each entrant does acknowledge and agree that in the event that such entrant is victorious, such entrant will perform a ceremony reasonably appropriate to such circumstance, including without limitation the post and dance of joy or all the dances from what the fox said we also have a discount code you can use code bsbt at baylorpress.com and you will get 20 percent off the cover price and free shipping so thank you to dr ali and to david and savannah at baylor press for hooking us up so if you're working out and you're walking the dogs and you're dying wool or cleaning or occupied and you're like i want to i want to enter i want to find out more no worries all of the details are also in the podcast entry so you can head over to smartpitchestrashybooks.com slash podcast in addition to all this awesomeness, I would also like to tell you we have more awesomeness. This podcast is being brought to you by Falling for Trouble by Sarah Title. The Riot Girl and the Bookworm, just the pair to get the whole town talking. With her signature wry wit and humor, librarian-turned-author Sarah Title returns to delight readers with Falling for Trouble, the second installment in her Librarians in Love series. With starred reviews from Kirkus, Publishers Weekly, Booklist, an Amazon editor's pick, and a glowing review from the Washington Post, this series is highly acclaimed and just plain fun. Falling for Trouble features a librarian hero with a penchant for running in very short running shorts and a rocker heroine who bond over music. When the library's funding is threatened in favor of a local sports team, Joanna and Liam band together uh, to try and save the library that's become so important to the community. Opposites attract as good boy Liam and bad girl Joanna just can't help it when the sparks fly. Falling for Trouble by Sarah Title is available now wherever books are sold and at kensingtonbooks.com. I also want to tell you about two things. First, we have an iTunes page. It's super rad. iTunes.com slash DBSA. If you're an i user, a user of iBooks, iTunes, i, all the other things, you can see the most recent episodes and some of the books we talked about all conveniently linked inside the iBook store. And I also want to tell you about our Patreon campaign because we are so close to the goal. I'm so excited. Oh, my gosh. We are close enough to my goal to start transcribing back episodes that I have started going through episodes one through five to get transcripts going. The podcast transcript for episode number two was posted this week, this past weekend. I want to thank you if you've had a look and if you are a podcast supporter. Thank you so very much. You can have a look at patreon.com slash smartbitches to see how close we are. We're so close. And if you'd like to support the show, thank you. And if that's not an option, if you tell a friend, leave a review, subscribe, what is I'm supposed to tell you to do? Like everyone on YouTube says this, like, sub subscribe, and 
comment, like, subscribe, like, subscribe, and review. I think that's what I'm supposed to ask for. Can you tell that this is not my uh, my strength here? Like, subscribe, and review to the podcast. No, that doesn't make any sense. You can't review to a podcast. Either way, if you are in some way telling people about the podcast or reviewing it or subscribing or telling people that you subscribed or going to the Patreon page, whatever you're doing, if you're listening, it's awesome. Thank you. I'm really bad at asking for things like this. Gosh, it's embarrassing. So for all the things, thank you. Our music as always, is provided by Sassy Outwater. I will have information at the end of the podcast as to who this is and where you can buy these funky, funky tunes. I will also have links to all of the books that we discuss in the podcast, and there are several, a number of them a little bit outside what we usually talk about, but truly sound fascinating. And I'll also have links to some of the places that we discuss, including the Popular Culture Association Conference, which has a romance track if you're interested in doing things like that, and links to the book Human and Death, which just came out a couple months ago. So without any further delay, on with the podcast. I'm Keisha Ali. I'm a professor of religion at Boston University, and I am a popular fiction junkie. Um, I wrote Human in Death, um, after reading the books and getting really interested and realizing I had something to say about them. It's not at all my area of specialization. My other books are about Islam, women, gender, law, biography. Um, but this in some ways is a reflection of the same kinds of questions that I ask um, in those other books about who's a person, what's a good life, how should we be in the world? So my first question was obviously, what inspired you to write about the series? Um, because I don't know if you're aware, but this is a lot of books in this series. <laughs> I'm like, aware. Like you could write about this one series and read this one series and still never run out of things to talk about or read. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I did read all the books and all the novellas um, twice, in fact. I read them once for fun and once again, all the way through, once I decided I was going to write this book. Wow. That's quite a lot of reading. So yeah. what was the moment where you were like, okay, I, I got to write about this? Well, it sort of crept up on me. Um, actually, the first thing that I did, which was a kind of academic crossover from this book, um, was give a paper at the Popular Culture Association about mentoring practices in the novels, right? Because oh. Eve Atlas takes Peabody under her wing. And, and I have a sort of sideline in my professional life where I do some mentoring and I write about professional development for women in my profession and, you know, host sessions at the big annual conference to talk about mentoring and um, to encourage certain kinds of contacts between senior scholars and junior scholars. And so I'm reading these books and I'm starting to notice that Dallas is a really good boss and a really good mentor to the junior cops in her department. And, and so I proposed a conference paper. And then I thought, well, that's all well and good, but there's something more about women and work and the place of work in the lives of these figures. And then I realized, well, it's really not just work, right? Because you can't separate out what's going on in her work life from what's going on in her personal life. No. From bigger questions about, you know, violence in this universe to bigger questions about this universe's notion of human perfection, human development, human community. And so, you know, gradually it became clear to me that this was a book. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you've read the series multiple times. Yeah. I, I'm thinking that that is sort of like the, the romance reader equivalent of running an ultra marathon. <laughs> like, that's a lot. It's, um, I, I did the math, actually. I added up the pages for the editions of the books that I have, and it came to between fifteen and 16,000 pages. Good gravy. That's yeah. some serious academic undertaking right there. <laughs> like, 
I mean, I know that scholarly work can take your entire lifetime and you might never find the answer, but that is a substantial amount of pages. Um, my next question was obviously, at least for me, was there anyone who looked at you and, and said or implied, why would you study that? So this was really interesting. Um, this book was kind of a secret. Um, I didn't talk about it with anyone while it was in progress until it was really almost finished, apart from the editor uh, who published it, Carrie Newman at Baylor. And I'd never done a book with him before. He and I had had conversations about some of my other books, but they do a fair amount of publishing around religion and ethics and a fair amount of publishing around religion and popular culture. And this book um, sort of leaves religion out, but but does ethics and popular culture. And, and so I, you know, floated to him the idea that I had of doing a book about this and sent him some notes and, and you know, with apologies for how embarrassingly rough they were. And um, he wrote back and he said, yeah, it's kind of a hot mess. You know, there's a lot of really banal stuff in here. There's lots of repetition, way too much extended quotation from the books. But you oh, might that, actually have something. <laughs> Too much quotation. Well, I mean, when you've got 15,000 pages worth of source corpus, there's a limit to how much you're actually going to be able to do. It's true. This is true. So, yeah, it was kind of something I did on the sly. Um, I didn't even tell my husband about it until I had a complete first draft of the book. Oh, Wow. Yeah, he'd see me with, with these novels, right? And I'd have these color-coded sticky flags. That's how I organized the chapters. Mm-hmm. Um, and he'd say, what are you doing? And I'd say, oh, nothing, nothing. <laughs> no. This is completely <laughs> normal behavior. I don't know what you've noticed here. This is this is all very standard. I need to go to the office supply store. I need puce. <laughs> um, and I didn't tell my colleagues about it. And, um, and, and then it was about to be published. And, and so then I told them. Well, yeah, that, that helps. Yeah. <laughs> so the way that you've structured the book, you look at intimacy, both emotional and physical, and then you look at friendship, um, vocation or work, violence, um, which, let's be real, could have been like its own book about yeah. these books. <laughs> Absolutely. And then the idea of perfection. And I... I, I, I personally found the chapters on friendship and vocation terribly fascinating. Um, and you look at the way that friendship evolves in the novels. That's one of the things that readers who, who like the series talk about as one of their favorite elements. What, what struck you most about the friendships between Eve's groups and, and Rourke's? Because there's a little overlap, but not a whole lot. There really isn't a whole lot. I mean, one of the things that was so compelling to me about the novels is the way that they get into the complexities of human relationships and the ways that they they acknowledge that um, being friends with someone is a really complicated endeavor, right? Um, Particularly for someone like Dallas, who is, to put it mildly, prickly as an individual. how can she make these contacts with people? How can she have enduring ties? What does it mean to show up for someone in ways that may not be all sweetness and light? What does it mean to meet them where they are, not where you'd like them to be? Um, I mean, it's really all about the possibility of relationship across difference. Um, and, And of course, that's a compelling piece of her relationship with Rourke as well. It is. And one of the things that I noticed was that after Rourke, both when I was reading your book and then thinking about the uh, the books, I have not read the whole series um, because I have reached a point where I can't read that much violence. I certainly can't read that much. I I like to say no children in peril and no entrails in my romance. And there's children (laughs) in peril and entrails in all of these books. So they are unfortunately no longer for me, though. I will recommend Naked and Death for anyone who would like to disappear into a rabbit hole for like two or three years. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. In my own notice of reading the books, I noticed that after Rourke, Eve began to bend a little bit and make more friends so that this fundamental intimacy on her part 
reached into her ability to make friends with other people. The, uh, up until Rourke, the only person I remember being um, like in her apartment was her friend who bought her dinner in like the first chapter. Right. Absolutely. Mavis, right? Yes. Thank you, Mavis. It's, it's only Mavis and, and sort of Feeney, who's not really exactly a friend, mm-hmm. but they form a partner and they spend time outside of work. And, and you know, Dallas is just closed off. And Mavis is only a friend because she just won't leave Eve alone. <laughs> it's, it's her tenacity and persistence that makes it possible for them to be friends. And with this relationship with Rourke, you see the opening up to allow people to get a little closer. And part of why I think that's really wonderful um, that Rob does this is so often what you see in, in real life and also sometimes in books with romances is that you get kind of a narrowing of focus, right? All the emotion all the effort all the time becomes invested in this primary intimate partnership and other folks become window dressing maybe. And, and what we see here actually in, in death is that it's the relationship with Rourke that actually provides this foundation for Dallas to open up to these other folks, many of whom were already in her life in one way or another. I mean, not Trina, but other right. people in her life. And and to actually let them in a little bit. And it's, it's an interesting um, contrast to what she does professionally. Because when you have a dead body and you have to figure out how the body got dead, you look at the relationships that that person had had until their death. You look at that network and mm-hmm. without... Um, Rourke and without Mavis, her network is like half a person, like barely many fundamental network relationships. And then by the, I think we're at 40, 45 now, 46. um, She has a a very large extended network of found family, for lack of a better term. Yeah, I think found family is actually a really terrific term. And that's a commonality in Rob's work and, and the novels that she publishes under the name Robert, yes. right? That that sometimes it's extended family, biological family, or adoptive family, uh, and and sometimes it's really found family comprised of neighbors, of friends, of colleagues. And one of the ways that this network uh, is kept together in the In Death series is the connections that don't just rely on Dallas, right? So these mm-hmm. people. Um, this cluster of women who are her friends are also friends with each other, right? She becomes a pivot in some ways, but Peabody and Mavis continue to have a relationship even when Dallas isn't immediately in the picture. Yep. And that's a, a really interesting and I think um, important way of thinking about relationships, right? That they're not just all spokes radiating out from this primary wheel, but rather that um, that there are independent kinds of connections and layers. And there's a um, an almost political sense of interdependence as well in, in the way that uh, Rob has set up the society. I remember being very struck. And I, when did Naked in Death come out? 1995. 1995. So I would have probably discovered it soon afterward, which means that I was a little bit over 20. And I remember being struck by the entire idea of having a uh, a salary, a, a stipend for women who are raising children. Yeah, and yeah. That you know, one of the one of the problems in a future book is that someone wants to take away that stipend and make it this unpaid labor, which is the next thing yep. I want to talk to you about. The idea of work and calling and vocation and job are all different concepts in this book, but even yep. then, they rely on that network of people who are going to support and and allow other people to be codependent on them in various ways. Yeah, you know, it's very interesting because one of the things, as I say in the book, that Rob spends almost no time on is formal politics. Yes. You know, politicians, like individual bad actors who show up in, in the first book and then in one of the recent books, Brotherhood and Death, right? Mm-hmm. Senators are bad guys. Right. <laughs> Given where we are as a country in this moment, that seems totally plausible to me, right? 
that that you know rich white guy senators are trying to do bad things to people, particularly women. Um, and yet, for the most part, Rob is not, and Dallas is not, and Rourke is not particularly invested in electoral politics of any real kind. But the paid stipend for stay-home parents, and they're very clear, the books, that it's not just women, yes, right? Yes, yes. Um, stay-home parent of any gender, uh, that's a really political choice. And as radical in 2017 as it was in 1995, maybe even more so. <laughs> but my, one of my two favorite quotes from your book um, addresses the idea of the, so I, I, let me back up a second. So one of the things that we talk a lot about on the site lately is female rage and yeah. the centering and primacy of portrayals of female rage that are coming out of romance fiction. It used to be mostly paranormal and it was often dudes, but now it is female rage and it is unfettered, unabashed, unapologetic female rage. There's a lot of rage in these books from 1995 all the way till now, Yeah, but it's not just consistently Eve or Rourke, it's sometimes the idea of injustice makes the whole community within the book subject to that rage. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Brotherhood and Death, which I talk about only a little bit in the book, it came out as I was finishing um, the final draft, has this group of privileged, powerful men um, who meet at Yale, I think, you know, five decades before and kind of get together every year to ground, to gang rape a young woman. As you do. Um, and they, they consider it this, yeah, this tradition, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and it's just sex and it's just tradition and they're friends, right? This is the antidote um, or the, the antithesis of the kind of powerful female friendship that's talked about in the books and even Rourke's much less developed notion of um, male friendship and male bonding. Mm-hmm. It's these toxic male friendships that are built on misogyny, right, that cement their partnership through the use of other individuals treated as ends rather than means. And um, I don't remember exactly where I was going. I remember where I was going with this. (laughs) So these murderers in the book are actually these women, former victims who've come together as vigilantes to target this group of men. And so Dallas's job is to find and stop the murderers. But really, you know, even though she makes the case that the important thing is, you know, these women should have sort of gone through channels, right? And she cannot condone them murdering these men Mm -hmm. Uh, nonetheless really the ones who come off absolutely the worst in the book are these men themselves right um and so even though they're not the villains in the sense that they're not the ones dallas has to catch they really are the bad guys and and the ultimate crime is their misogyny and society is culpable for having let them get away with it for so long. That was one of the most interesting points that you made um, in, in your book, in specifically that when, when you wrote, in critiquing inherited wealth and snobbery, in-death implicitly critiques white privilege as it intersects male and class privilege. My hands down, my favorite, I could cross-stitch this line from your book is... Um, <laughs> In the series' first and most recent installments, wealthy, educated, privileged white men, rich and politically connected, commit sexual crimes, persistently harm women, and expect their privilege to protect them. It doesn't. Yes. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, like I would cross-stitch yeah. the hell out of that because it, she really – the the world – I think it's fascinating um, when you look at what an author is doing but also what the world that has been created is doing because the books themselves do things and I and it's interesting to look at what is the work that they're doing you're you're totally right the entire power structure is questioning white male class privilege which is sort of startling when you turn the page and then start looking at the portrayal of race which is very different you know it is and it, it's so interesting there's a kind of obliviousness around 
white womanhood in particular um, in these novels. And as a white woman reading them and as a white woman thinking more about race in the last few years than I have in quite a while, uh, it was really, really striking to me um, the ways in which whiteness tends to go unspoken in the novels and the ways in which this group of friends that Dallas surrounds herself with, you know, it's all white women. And it's really remarkable um, that as different as they are in all of these ways, in terms of age, in terms of background, in terms of profession, in terms of fashion sense, in terms <laughs> of feelings about children, right? Nadine, um, Mavis, Dr. Mira, Trina, right? All of these women are white and nobody, and they're all heterosexual, or at least they're only shown partnered with men in the series, that it never comes up. It never comes up. And it's so, so striking. Especially as you move through looking at the books as the as they came out in 1995, all the way through now, 22 years later, that the absence of politics and the absence of any kind of interrogation or even examination of race beyond the portrayals that you talk about in the book is is really startling. And because I don't keep up with the series, when I started reading it, I, I had this moment where I had to like, I usually read on the treadmill and I had to step off onto the sidebars and be like, holy crap, <laughs> holy crap. Oh my goodness. How did I not notice? Like, cause I, like you said, as the reader, you're culpable in not noticing what isn't explicitly said. Right. And I mean, I, I want to suggest that, that as white readers, many of us are culpable for that. I doubt that Rob's readers of color have failed to notice, right? Oh, no. Um, I think, you know, when when an author is white and presumes the readers are white, very often there's just a kind of um, unwillingness to, not unwillingness even, a, a just kind of um, an ability to let it pass unspoken without thinking through it. And so I'll say two things. One is that I do think Rob is thinking about race, mm -hmm. but I don't think she's thinking about white womanhood, right, in, in particular, um, because many of her male characters are men of color, um, not the primary one, you know, not Rourke, mm -hmm. not Somerset, um, but, um, you know, but the medical examiner, both of her bosses, right, both the commander and the chief. Um, and she thinks about race a lot in the sense that this world that she constructs, New York in the middle of the 21st century, has mixed race individuals mentioned constantly, mm -hmm. sometimes with further specifications, sometimes without. It's when you get to that intimate sphere of friendship that women of color just don't appear or occasionally they, they show up near the fringe, mm -hmm. right? Um, so there's a new character who was introduced a couple of books back who identifies herself as being part black and part Asian. Um, and she's not cracked even in her circle, right? Um, and maybe she will. I'd love to see that. Uh, but it, it's really interesting that she doesn't when other women, including women with whom Dallas starts off having antagonistic relationships, right? Like Dr. Louise, right? Um, end up incorporated into that circle fairly quickly. Mm -hmm. They do. Yeah. So, so that that's point one about race. And then there was something else I was going to say. But oh, the the other thing that I was going to say about race is that um, I think one of the things that struck me most about these novels is the way that, that um, they tend to have a more compelling ethical sensibility the more they explicitly examine whatever the issue is in question. So on the question of white women's friendships, um, that's not something that particularly gets examined, and it, and it ends up you know, not to my mind being a particularly 
thoughtful take on the issue. Whereas the question of women's different attitudes around clothing, women's different attitudes around work, women's different attitudes around childbearing, these things get a little more attention. They're more richly imagined. Mm -hmm. There are a variety of different possibilities brought together. And hence, I think ultimately they're, they're um, more richly thought through. Um, and I, th I think the other place where Rob really um, could do better is around the question of disability. Right. Yes, so that is one of my questions for you. Please say all the words. <laughs> I'll say a few of the words. Uh, so, so one of the things that's so, so striking if you compare this futuristic universe to other futuristic universes, whether utopian, dystopian, I sometimes talk about these books as quasi-dystopian. I don't think they're really uh, dystopian, but nor do I think um, that that they are presenting a kind of normal vision of the future. I think there is a strong strand of what might have really gone wrong and, and couldn't quite be put right again. Um, but one of the things that rarely comes up, and it comes up a little bit in conspiracy and a little bit in origin, both of which I talk about in that chapter, is this notion, and a couple of other places, this notion of what is a sort of adequate human body to be engaging the world through. Mm -hmm. And this world just doesn't really imagine anything other than perpetual able-bodiedness or decrepitude and death. So for all these technological innovations, you know, there are artificial limbs and artificial eyes and so forth that get mentioned briefly in passing. Um, but there's no technology built with access in mind, right? Um, the scanners are all at eye level of someone standing up. There's no access, nothing that would compensate for um, not being able to read, not being able to hear, not being able to see. And anytime a temporary disability arises, so, you know, McNabb gets hit by laser fire and is temporarily um, in using a wheelchair, it's this catastrophe, right, that he worries that he'll be paralyzed forever. And, you know, Dallas is very worried because he might have to, you know, be stuck in a chair. But at other times, you see e-geeks, right, people who are primarily working on computers, doing their police work through that, uh, sitting down on chairs, moving back and forth on stools by counters. It's not like he couldn't do the work mm -hmm. from a chair. It's that the notion is hugely frightening. And again, this is something where I think it, it's just a question of not really having thought about it. Because when Dallas does think about cloning and the quest for perfection, you know, she and Peabody do engage in this kind of extended exchange about who decides when something is perfect enough and what constitutes a defect. Um, but where it's not thought through, it becomes a little trickier. And it's, it's, it's a very strange sort of exclusion in this future that includes so much advancement in terms of recognizing how people live. It's strange exclusion, except it's really not if you think about the ways that most American conversations about disability take place. Oh, this is very true. Right? Um, Alison Kafer has a really wonderful book called Feminist Queer Crip, in which she talks about... I was going to say, well, what's that book about? <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's about all the things, right? It's about the intersections of queer identity, of feminist perspectives and about disability and the ways in which disability is constructed, not just in gendered ways, but about a kind of social model of disability, right? Where disability isn't about 
individual people falling short and needing to seek medical intervention or cure, but rather that the obstacles in place mm -hmm. are, are there uh, largely because, you know, people don't think expansively about access. Yes. Um, I, I had this put to me in a wonderful way um, by someone recently. Um, and she said, you know, when we talk about access technologies and only use that for technologies that enable people that we conceptualize as living with disabilities to access certain kinds of services, we forget that we all need certain kinds of services. So we talk about ramps as accessibility technologies, but think of stairs as just, well, what you do. Right. You know, say, well, why can't they, whatever, whatever. It's like, well, you know, you want stairs. You don't want to haul yourself up the side of a building and, you know, over the window ledge, right? <laughs> or, you know, you say, well, posting certain kinds of handouts that will be accessible to people with screen readers, that's an accessibility technology. But what about the fact that you have to pay the light bills so people who are sighted can see in the classroom, yep. right? There are all kinds of resources that are necessary. Anyway, that, that just goes to say that I think part of the reason Rob hasn't robustly imagined accessibility in this universe is that we as Americans haven't very robustly imagined no. accessibility for the most part. This past week I was at a Five Guys and I noticed that um, the soda machine is, has like a touchscreen. You can get every possible soda in the universe, which makes this a fantastic bribe for young human beings should you need one. <laughs> But there is a button to make it accessible um, when the screen is too high. And then next to that was the iced tea dispenser, but the controls for it were on top. And there was a separate panel for access um, that was at counter height. And I was like, my Five Guys is more accessible than like 60% of the doctor's offices I've been to in the last month. That's very strange. Yeah, yeah, it is... Um... Well, you know, maybe five guys will lead the world. <laughs> so that's a different dystopia. That would be a very different, <laughs> beefy, delicious dystopia. But bad for people with peanut allergies because that giant that place is like one giant peanut. Okay, all right. Well, <laughs> and we haven't even touched on like food and soy and real food in the in-depth universe, right? Because that. Oh that my gosh. Well, the thing that I I am fascinated by is, in addition, when you were looking at how. Uh, race is examined and called out in specific characters and then not the, the default is whiteness um, right. the, all of this world exists after the urban wars yeah. and we talked at all about the urban wars like urban is coded for a whole lot of things here what kind of what kind of war is there like a handbook was there a guide to this world like I'm waiting for the urban wars history book to show up in the books it's like Quidditch through the ages right <laughs> This this has a very important role. <laughs> Urban wars, a little broom yeah. on the cover. Like there's no this massive pivotal event happened. Um, and right about now, created... actually, right. I mean, the middle right. of, the, of the second decade of the 21st century, which is a little creepy, a little freaky, a little scary. I'm telling you, she's hiding lottery numbers in these books. She's <laughs> writing them from the future and just sending them on back. But there's there's no examination of what that was and what that what those terms mean, right? Yeah, so so that's true. I mean, one of the things that you get is urban is of course coded in particular ways, and and crack as a character, of course, is um, hugely important. Even if he doesn't get a lot of page time, he becomes important in conceptualizing race, in thinking about gender, in thinking about. Um, the intersections of the professional and the personal and the way that those collide in Dallas's world. Um, but of course, there's also the urbanness. Um, the urban wars don't really seem in this imagining to have actually had anything to do with class or race, except insofar as when we see the parts of New York that never really recovered from the wars. Of course, they're the poor parts, right? Mm -hmm. um, of course, the slapdash construction that went up in the wake of the war and has never actually been really properly rebuilt 
you know, these are apartments that poor folks live in. There's clearly some kind of allusion to dysfunctional public housing. Um, and in general, again, a, a kind of, I don't want to quite call it subterranean. Well, actually, let's call it subterranean because there's also the whole underground, a kind of subterranean critique of the class structure. Yes, yes, that's definitely true. And you mentioned gender a minute ago. Um I did want to ask you about that because there are a lot of ways in which gender expectations are overtly switched. Eve is the one who struggles with emotional vulnerability, whereas for the most part, Rourke is like, oh, sure, feelings, okay, no problem. Yes, yes. And then there's others in which Eve consistently rejects femininity as a weakness. Yes. Do you see a changing awareness in the characters as to how they respond to or react to gender? Because there's also that um, a very visible and enforced inside the text binary. Yeah. So, so there is a, a real binary. Um, and I think that one of the things that's most striking if you read one of the books from the early 90s and you read one of the books you know, from last year um, is, is that overt aggressive masculinity as part of Rourke's um, character in his engagement with Dallas has diminished in some kinds of ways, mm-hmm. right? So, so the aggressive, controlling, dominant, courtship narrative um, has sort of faded, but some of the things that Dallas was really anxious about, and I think Rob is sort of anxious about in the 90s, about, you know, what does it mean if Rourke picks her up and carries her, which is a thing in Robert's novels too, right? I mean, it's, it's there in, I don't know, 75% of them. Oh, yeah. And in the 80s and the 90s, right, the women are like, no, this is a problem for gender politics reasons, yeah. right? And, and so in the 90s, that, that's kind of an issue. Today, it's like it's not a problem, right? Um, because we've sort of won that battle. We don't have to be aggressively fighting it. Um, one of the things that, that I was most struck by in reading the novels is, on the one hand, Eve's rejection of dominant modes of feminine self-presentation, of feminine emotionality, of fertility and childbearing as sort of the be-all, end-all, necessary teleology of women's existence, and at the same time, how Rob manages not to make those things be a war that women fight each other about, right? Yes, that's definitely the case. Dallas can be kind of a prude, and she can also say about sex workers well, you know, she's got this job. This is the job she likes. Good on her, right? This is how she wants to organize her life. Fabulous. And she can have friends who have children and adore them, who wear lipstick, who wear high heels. And yeah, she's going to be a little derisive about those heels, right? Particularly when it means that Peabody can't keep up very well in a chase. But it doesn't become woman against woman on the basis of those issues. And and that's smart um, because I think that so often um, women get convinced to fight other women about these things as opposed to, you know, joining up to smash the patriarchy. Yep, totally um, true. Some of us in high heels and some of us in combat boots. And, and I think that that's really um, an achievement of the series when it comes to those questions about what does it mean to be a woman? How how can one be a woman? How should one be a woman? It's it's definitely something that I notice now. I, I, I've said a couple of times that, you know, a few years ago, I could not have told you what cisgendered meant. Right. Then I was on Twitter and I learned a whole hell of a lot over the past, you know, six or seven years about, about gender and decolonizing <laughs> stories and things like that. And so it's very interesting to see this this very strong binary definition still mm-hmm. being explored. There's not a lot of gender fluidity portrayed at all. No, there really isn't. And thank you for coming back to that. I lo- lost track of this piece of the question. I mean, in the 1990s books, right, it, it's not so surprising no, not that, that you get the kind of transvestite or transsexual who shows up 
just a couple of times in the books and is sort of a figure of either amusement or is kind of um, this, you know, isn't New York grand, right? You know, so so this is just part of what New York is like as a place. Mm-hmm. Um, but this notion that that trans individuals or folks who don't comfortably fit into a binary who are genderqueer would show up in these novels is really just, it's just not part of the universe, um, at least not yet. You know, maybe books that are written going forward will have that. What you do have in the books and what was really, if not revolutionary, certainly unusual in the mid-90s is that you have same-sex partnership, that you have gay, lesbian, and bisexual individuals, none of them, mind you, in Eve's inner circle, right? There's no one who, that we know of, um, who identifies as gay or as lesbian or as bisexual in those characters who show up very frequently. But policy-wise and just in terms of the slice of the population that Eve interacts with professionally, same-sex relationships are just part of the story, it right? It's there. part of the imagined world. And and this is really interesting, right? So imagining 60 years into the future, Rob posits a universe where same-sex partnerships are just a humdrum fact of life. Yep. In 2017, this is not amazing. In 1995, this was pretty freaking unusual. Very unusual. As well as uh, licensed sexual companions. Yes, exactly. Licensed exactly. and, uh, um, there's a word and I'm li- looking for, that for their, sex work is a, is a vocation treated like any other vocation in that world. It is. It is. Um, and, and in some ways, that's also framed in ways, you know, for 1995, um, for mainstream America, this is a very progressive and different kind of picture. Um, you know, today, those involved in sex work activism would probably say, you know, what she's talking about is not legalization or decriminalization, but but legalization and regulation and the ways in which it gets regulated and cops can, you know, use uh, expired licenses against folks. You know, that, that's maybe not the model to be striving for, but the fact that it shows up that way 20 years ago is really something. It really is. Are you going to read, uh, I mean, did you read Echoes in Death that when it came out in February? You're going to read the next one in September? Are you going to keep up with the series, or do you need a little break oh, after yeah. taking such I, a I, deep dive? I have kept up with the series. I, um, I've i read Echoes in Death. I've read Apprentice in Death. And uh, let me tell you, I felt really validated. Um, and I don't remember which of those two books it was in. But, um, you know, I said in the book somewhere, well, you know, some places it says Crack is a bouncer. In other places it says he's an owner. We don't really quite know exactly what he is. You know, so we'll just call him sort of bouncer slash owner. And in one of those books, Rob talks about him as a the club bouncer slash owner and I thought, wow, I got it. <laughs> and you know, I read Apprentice in Death and so I'm testing my hypotheses from this book in the new editions that come out. And in and I talk about Rourke and Somerset having a kind of complicated sort of quasi filial slash paternal relationship and the interactions that they have in Apprentice and Death at the scene of the second one of those mass shootings is actually exactly like that, right? It yep. very much comes to the fore that they have this familial kind of bond. And I thought, oh, yeah, I did get that right. <laughs> that was one of my questions, actually. Um, where do you think that the series is going to go in terms of the areas that you examined? Or and if you don't think it's going to go in that direction, what would you like to see? Well, you know, I think it's going to continue really on its trajectory of exploring these relationships, um, exploring these questions of power, exploring these questions of violence, of systemic corruption. Um, What would I like to see? I guess I would like to see Rob 
more explicitly tackling some of these issues around race, some of these issues around sexual orientation and gender identity. Um, but I think, you know, it really is a, a pretty richly imagined world and there is room to have the characters think differently about disability, to raise those issues again with a new case. I mean, this is what's so striking. Every book is a fresh chance to take some of these themes, filter them through the prism of these powerful relationships and these world-building assumptions and tell a new story and a story that allows for growth and change. I mean, that's one of the things that we've seen over, you know, it's roughly three years in the series timeline, 22 years in the publication timeline, right. that these are characters capable of change and growth and development in all kinds of surprising directions. And so... I, I don't think it's static. I don't think it's just plug a case in and, you know, spit out whatever it says. I, I think there's there's room for exciting things to happen. Well, the series wouldn't have much of a readership if, if the world and the characters did not continue to evolve and grow and change. Right. Like that has right. to happen. Yeah. Yeah. When you were reading all 15 to 16,000 pages. <laughs> yeah. Did you happen to notice any quirks or habits or patterns outside of the ones that you addressed in your book? Um, I noticed, for example, when you were writing about uh, work and vocation, that everyone's damn good. Yeah, everyone is <laughs> damn good. Everyone is damn good. You know, I mean, that's the fantasy, right? Yep. You can surround yourself with competent people who are satisfied in the work that they do yep. and because they like it and because they're good at it, good work gets done. So, you know, Hey, look, if that's the fantasy, I could totally live with that. Just continuing. I am totally fine with that. Yeah. Um, and you know, are there some writing things, some syntactic patterns that Rob uses and reuses? Absolutely. Oh, yeah, uh, triple infinitive, right? <laughs> yes, absolutely. One of the things that um, that people sometimes sort of ponder about Roberts online is, oh, she can't possibly write all those books herself, oh, right? Oh, no, she, she does. <laughs> if you read them, right, if you Start in the early 80s and, and you just, you know, every decade you read a handful of books, you see it's very clearly her. Oh, it's right? absolutely not anyone else. <laughs> there are uh, speech patterns, right? It, it's so clearly a kind of coherent imagination. That doesn't mean they're all the same. The characters are actually quite different in lots of kind of ways, but the, the guiding preoccupations are fairly similar across yep. this body of work. I've always found it fascinating that you can see pieces of other characters in earlier books. Like I think that yes. the hero of Born in Fire is a sort of prototype of Rourke. Yes, a little bit. A and little. Yes, there's like a there's pieces of him in there. And then Brianna, who's the heroine of the second one, Born in Ice, um, there's a lot of her character in Siobhan when they go to Ireland. The idea yeah. that keeping a home and keeping an inn and making a home welcoming for even strangers is a passion and is a vocation. And I love seeing those pieces show up. So whenever someone's like, oh, no, it couldn't possibly be her. Oh, no, it's totally her. Trust me. <laughs> Trust me. I read a crap ton of these and there's no mistake in it. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And, and one of the things that's really interesting is the way that some of the character traits get combined in new kinds of ways, yes. right? Um, and and um, it, it's just so striking that there are character types who get plopped down in new places, but then because they're in new places in different relationship configurations, you see new facets of their personalities, right, that, that, uh, that come to fruition. And, and different stresses turn them into different characters throughout the course of the novel. Which is, of course, what happens to all of us in our lives, yep. right? I mean, we are, in large part, who we are because of the people in our lives and the events in our lives. Yes, I did a, uh, 
I did an interview with some authors who wrote a anthology called Sight Unseen. Um, mm-hmm. That episode's actually going to come out this week. And the, the anthology is stories that, um, that none of the stories are attributed to the authors. So you know who's included, but you don't know who wrote, who wrote what. Oh, wow. And it's experimenting with the idea that you expect from Sherry Thomas this. Can you identify Sherry Thomas's writing in this book or Meredith Duran or Emma Berry? And so while we were having a conversation, we ended up talking about internal conflict and external conflict and that um, external conflict, things happening to you, doesn't always in, in a novel mean that things change of you, the, the things inside yeah. of you, yeah. who you are, change. The thing about the, the in-death books and all of her romances is that the, the characters undergo a fundamental change from book to book and story to story. There's, yeah. a, there's issues that carry forward. And they evolve as people. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and of course, you know, so much of what Roberts does writing as Roberts is series fiction, not everything, right? So yeah. there are standalone romantic suspense, romantic thriller kinds of books. Yep. Um, but so much of the straight romance is in series um, that, that sometimes are just connected stories, but sometimes are quest stories, right? Um, so if you think about, you know, what's even a good one? I mean, the Gallagher's of Ardmore is more, there are just a couple of stories, but then the, um, the most recent Island of Glass, that trilogy, right? There's a quest. And so you have not just three couples that come together, but you get a new unit forged over the course of the series yep. that you know results in of course defeating supernatural evil but yes. also results in um a real change in each of the characters by virtue of having participated in this communal quest yes and in the in death series right the fact that it is a series and ongoing it's episodic given the procedural format but there's also this kind of much longer arc of a building of a community that is engaged not in in quite the same kind of quest, right? Because it's not like you defeat supernatural evil in the city of New York and you just keep on going. Um, It's this much more mundane, but also really, um, really necessary kind of quest. And I think in some ways this is the difference between the romance books and the in-depth series, which has romance, but doesn't have the structure of a romance, right? Just just the first three books that have that romance arc, yes. right? Um, in, in Pam Regis's sense of, you know, the eight essential elements. But it's partly because you can't resolve it, right? I mean, that's part of, of this world. That's part of Dallas's mindset. That's part of what Rob is saying, Unfortunately, it's, it, it, this isn't a battle you can win, but nor is it a battle you can stop fighting. No. And, and so those two things really exist in tension. So the one question I always ask my guests um, is if they have any books that they'd like to recommend. Now, I know you're on summer break. <laughs> so I imagine so many books to recommend. Yes, so I, many books to recommend. So, what books would you like to recommend to um, to listeners? So, one of the best books that I read in the last year is Carol Anderson's White Rage. It just won a National Book Critics Circle Award. Um, I think. Now my mind's going blank. Um, that always happens. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, they should read my book, of course. Of course. Um, That'll be linked. Fear not. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm also reading right now Stefan Gerson's um, book, Disaster Falls, which is a memoir about child loss. Um, and it, it recounts an accident and family in the aftermath. Um, it's really terrific. Um, Art, Bird, Life by Kayo... I'm not going to remember the last name, but you can find it because the Google um, and or I'll send a link. No, don't worry. I got it. Um, Zainab Tufeji, Twitter and tear gas is one I've just started. 
Um, so, but I, I do recommend it. Um, I, I've only read the introduction, a little bit of the first chapter, um, but it looks like it's going to be terrific. It's about networked protest, um, both the strength and also the fragility of that. Um, I read Roxane Gay's Difficult Women earlier this summer, and it was astonishingly good. Uh, I would highly recommend that to everyone. Um, and you know, I think everybody should read Nora Roberts' Chesapeake Bay series. I do love that series. I think that's my favorite uh, for Roberts' books. That was my other question. Do you have a favorite outside of the in-death books? I really like the Chesapeake Bay series and, and the Born In series that you recommended. Or that I love you those. I think those are really terrific. I actually reread those um, a few weeks ago. Um, because I'm very interested in what she does with creative careers and, and the ways in which she thinks about creative work um, and creative practice. And, and that, that creative practice as a job does not negate the existence of it as a passion, that when you make money for your art, there's nothing wrong with that. Just like when you make money for caring for your children at home, there's exactly. nothing wrong with that. Right. Um, you know, this idea that money is somehow corrupting is, yes. is, not, is no, not, it's actually privilege and sexual violence that are corrupting, dear. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, I, I will tell you one of the questions that I've been asked when I've done other podcasts and, and you can choose whether or not to share this with mm -hmm. listeners is what are you working on now? And I'll tell you that I'm working on two things. One of the things is a book about women in Muslim traditions, a textbook for the undergraduate classroom. Uh, and I've got a draft of it into the publisher and some comments back, so I'm working on revisions to that. But the other thing that I'm working on is a book about Robert's romances. Oh, yay! Uh, and, you know, writing Human and Death, reading all of the in-death books and thinking about them um, left me with the kinds of questions about Nora Roberts' work in romance that can really only be answered by writing about them. And, and reading all of them, you poor, poor thing. <laughs> you know, this is not 15,000 pages. This is like 60,000 pages. Oh, just a few pages, yeah. And, you know, while we were recording, I'm pretty sure she finished another book. <laughs> I think I'm going to have to cap it at like the end of 2016, which yeah. is just, you know, 35 years worth of books. You so can call it Sisyphus. <laughs> Sisyphus reads romance. An analysis of Nora Roberts' entire oeuvre. <laughs> yeah, I, I think instead of, you know, tracking pages, I'll have to count it just in linear shelf feet. Right? <laughs> yes, <laughs> metric and imperial. <laughs> And that is all for this week's episode. I want to thank Dr. Ali for taking the time to talk to me about her research and also to Dr. Ronis for suggesting her as a guest. This was so much fun. I sometimes worry that I nerd out a little too hard in certain topics and interviews. And then I hear from you guys who are like, oh, that was amazing. Do more of it. So I hope this was one of those episodes that you found fascinating as I did. And I want to reiterate because um, people at Baylor Publishing, specifically David and Susanna, or Savannah, excuse me, are awesome. You have an opportunity to win a copy of the book at smartbitchestrashybooks.com slash podcast in the podcast show notes for this entry. There'll be a raffle copter. You can enter to win a copy of Human in Death. Open to U.S. and Canadian residents only. Must be over 18 and ready to learn. Void where prohibited. And disclaimer, disclaimer, disclaimer. And if you're thinking, I would really like to order this book. I think my library needs this book. I think I need this book. You can go to Baylor Press, B-A-Y-L-O-R Press.com and use code BSBT and you get 20% off the cover price plus free shipping. Thank you again to David and Savannah and to Dr. Ali for hooking us up. Now, three things I always have to tell you about. First of all, this podcast was brought to you by Falling for Trouble by Sarah Title. With her signature wry wit and humor, librarian-turned-author Sarah Title is returning to delight readers with Falling for Trouble, the second book in her Librarians in Love series. 
This book has starred reviews from Kirkus, Publishers Weekly, Booklist, it's an Amazon editor's pick, and it has a glowing review from the Washington Post. It is highly acclaimed, and it is just plain fun. Falling for Trouble features a librarian hero with a penchant for running in very short running shorts, and a rocker heroine, and they bond over music. When the library's funding is threatened in favor of a local sports team, Joanna and Liam have to team up to try to save the library that's become so important to the community. Opposites attract as good boy Liam and bad girl Joanna just can't help when sparks fly. Falling for Trouble by Sarah Title is on sale now wherever books are sold and on kensingtonbooks.com. If you have had a look at our Patreon page or you've become a podcast patron, thank you so much. Patreon.com slash smartbitches has all of the information. We are so close to the goal for helping me commission transcripts for the 70 or so episodes that don't have one yet. I have already started by commissioning a transcript for podcast number two. Thank you, thank you, thank you for having a look, for subscribing, for reviewing, for sharing, for telling a friend, and most of all for listening. It's really awesome that you hang out with me each week. Every week we have music courtesy of Sassy Outwater, who is awesome. You can find her and say thank you on Twitter at Sassy Outwater. This is Caravan Palace. This track is called Maniac. They have a two-album set featuring Caravan Palace and Panic, two of their albums. It's on Amazon. It's on iTunes. You can find them on Facebook or on their website, caravanpalace.com. And of course, I will have a link to the album and the song in the show notes. I really dig this two-album set. I know a lot of you have bought it and told me how much you like it, too. It is pretty great music to just have on while you're eating or cooking or whatever. I will also have links to all of the books that we talked about. There are some really fascinating titles in this week's episode. I had a really interesting time finding all the links. And also thank you to Amanda, who compiles all of the links in the database so that we can link them on the site. So on behalf of Dr. Ali and Orville, who is trying to crawl in the sound box again, and everyone here, we wish you the very best of reading. Have an excellent weekend. We'll see you next week. <laughs>